When I was an army chaplain, my soldiers asked me all kinds of questions about God, life, relationships, the Bible, and answered them as best I could. They also called me Padre. Welcome to the Dear Padre podcast, where today we're wrapping up the story of Jacob, talking about mummies, too, and the time I slept with one. And so ends the life of Jacob. His life spans one of the greatest transitions in the people of God. He is one of the patriarchs that we mentioned Sunday in our Eucharistic prayer. God of our fathers, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Jacob is sort of the last named patriarch, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob of that first three. Um, And this is how he dies. It's a beautiful scene, uh, very, very touching and very human, where it says he breathes his last, he ended his charge to his sons, he gives a long speech where he identifies the particular traits that each of his sons have and then prophesies about them, the kind of things that will happen to them and they will do. Some of them are really personal and uh, descriptive. Um, And others are are a little more down to earth. And yet he knew each of them and gave these prophecies to them. And then it says he drew up his feet into his bed. Um, You can just see him going from sitting sort of like a, a king in a throne in his bed, declaring these prophecies and then sort of laying, rolling on the side and pulling his feet in and, and they're being gathered to his people or gathered to his fathers, as the Hebrew says. Joseph weeps over him uh, in despair, falls on his bed in despair, weeping. And you can see that Joseph now is the father. Joseph is the patriarch of this family. Even though Reuben is the oldest child and Judah sort of comes in as the next kind of leader, it is Joseph who is the leader now. He is the patriarch of this family. He's the one that um, takes the leadership. Jacob is embalmed after the manner of the Egyptians. Egyptians embalming techniques are world-renowned and legendary. Um, There are fewer mummies in the world today because uh, in the the 19th century and maybe even beyond, Europeans got really excited about mummies and started finding them in Egypt and uh, bringing them back. And some of them even ate mummies. I'm not kidding you. Mummies were the rage. Um, And if you go to pretty much any American museum today that has ancient history stuff in it, it probably has a mummy. I once went on a Cub Scout camp out at the museum in Louisville, Kentucky, and we slept like in the museum. Um, We camped, my sons and I, in the museum, and I slept right next to this mummy that was behind glass. But I remember that, (laughs) thinking about that, Um, the span of our lives, um, these mummies 
I don't know, 4,000 years old or something, um, right on the other side of the glass. But mummies were very uh, exciting things for Europeans to discover. If you bury someone in Northern Europe, they, uh, there may be something left after 100 years. I don't know, not much. You might find some gold and rings and whatnot, but you're not going to find a mummy. And here they found these mummies. And, and J- Jacob becomes one. He is embalmed in the standard 40-day embalming practice, um, almost as, as if he will last forever. Um, here we see an amalgamation or a blending of two major religions. Well, at least one is a major religion, the Egyptian religion, and the religion of the people of God, the patriarchs, Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, sort of coming together in this moment. We know that Joseph has a wife who is the daughter um, of, a, of an Egyptian priest, not of, a, of an Egyptian religious priest. Um, and so Joseph is very embedded in this culture of Egypt. And so the normal thing to do for a revered father would be to embalm him. And they do that. Um, and yet, he's not going to be buried in a pyramid. He's not going to be buried in the Valley of the Kings. He's not going to be buried in some monument to the afterlife. The pharaohs and others in Egypt would spend a lot of their resources building a giant tomb so that they would have an afterlife that was commensurate with their physical life. Um, There's lots of things in museums and and on the internet and in movies of the, the boats that were buried with the pharaohs so they could sail down the river and have a good life. They often enslaved people were killed and buried with the pharaohs to be their slaves in the afterlife. Um, they're pets sometimes and a number of other things. So this belief in the afterlife cost people in the real life um, in really awful ways. So we can see um, the cruelty of this culture as well, not just the, the opulence of it. Um, and so here uh, Jacob has made them swear to go back to Canaan, and Joseph gets an Egyptian entourage together. He and his brothers, but Joseph is the leader. They get chariots, it says. These are the same Egyptian chariots that will someday chase down the people of God to the Red Sea and surround them and scare them. And these are the very chariots that God will destroy in the Red Sea. Um, Pharaoh and his army, he has drowned in the sea. The chariots of Pharaoh has he drowned in the sea. But at this point, the chariots are loyal to Joseph. The chariots and the charioteers go with him. And they go up to this place that Abraham purchased from um, from a, a man named um, Atad the Hittite, or is that his name? Um, I forget the guy that he bought it from. Uh, he was a Hittite. You have several Hittites show up in the Bible. Um, Ephron the Hittite, Zach Ephron the Hittite, he buys the um, threshing floor there from, and the field and the cave of Machpelah. And there, Abraham and Sarah are buried. Leah, Jacob's first wife, is buried there as well, and Rachel his second wife. Um, Isaac, I guess, is buried there too. I don't know, it doesn't say that. Um, but this is where the patriarchs, the land that they own. Remember, God promised the whole land to them, 
But at this point, all they have is this tiny little cave that they own. Um, small beginnings to something that ends up being pretty big. And they, they are to return to this land. Now, Joseph is going back for the first time. This is where he grew up. This is where his brothers betrayed him. This is where, um, you know, this is where he transitioned from one life to another. This is the last thing he saw before his life radically changed. And he's going back to the scene of those crimes. He's going back. What is What I struggle with or wonder about is why didn't he go back before? The minute he seized power, the minute he was able to be the second in command of Egypt, why didn't he just slip away and go back? Well, he didn't want to. That's why. Uh, Even though he was far from home, even though he really didn't have status like a citizen might have in Egypt or whatever it was, he had something there that he could never have back home, and that was his own life. That was his own identity, his own um, way of doing something good in the world. If he goes back, um, he becomes that child, pretentious child prophet that everybody hates. Um, our location does determine a lot of how we see ourselves. Um, and it's, it's true for Joseph, too. He goes back to the cave, and there they bury the father. The Canaanites, this is another detail in the story, the Canaanites are watching, and they see this big entourage of Egyptians come up, and they mourn. They sit Shiva, as, as we might say today, seven days of mourning. They sit in mourning for seven days. There's lamentations, there's poetry, there's loud music, perhaps, or some other ways of commemorating the loss of Jacob. And the Canaanites notice this, and they call the, that field the, um, the mourning meadow of the Egyptians. Um, in Hebrew, the word for uh, Egyptians is Mitzrayim, um, and they uh, are there in the, in the field that is named after them. And that is commemorated there. The Canaanites are watching. So you can see the drama that's about to unfold in the story of Joseph and his descendants and Jacob and his descendants in the Exodus. The Exodus is the, the primal moment of, of sacred history in the Old Testament. It is God's deliverance from Egypt. It is where they become a new, a new nation, a real nation that is not just a couple families or one little family, but a whole uh, network of, of people. And so... This is where it all gets started. And Joseph and his brothers go back to Egypt, and they start over. Joseph now is the patriarch of the family. Um, We can see a lot of things happening in this, but we also see that um, these were real people, people that were subject to the same anxieties, fears, as we were, we are. Um, People that are still... um, working out things with our parents, even though we're grown-ups. Jacob is quite old at this point, over a hundred, I think. That counts as old, right? Um, And his elderly children are still working out their relationship with him and with each other. This is an ongoing thing, our relationships. Never really get to a solid state where we say, ah, everything's perfect. We're always working these things out. We're always learning more about ourself and, and about others. And so this grieving and this mourning is something 
that becomes really important for this family. Um, And the grieving of our lives is an important thing too. We ought to take the time to grieve the things that we've lost, whether it's the loss of a person that we've loved uh, through death or some other thing, uh, or the loss of a job, a career, a loss of health, a loss of something. Whatever it is, it is okay to grieve, to take seven days to grieve, to make lamentation for that. Um, That is the pattern of grief that we get from Holy Scripture. We get from the life of Jesus. We get from our Christian tradition and from our ancestors here in the Old Testament. This is what we have, and we need to do it and not ignore it. If we do ignore it, if we try to move on too soon, if we try to pretend like nothing has happened, um, that kind of grief has a way of paralyzing us, of, of hurting us, and, and maybe even other people as well. So take the time you need to grieve your, the losses of your life. Um, lamentation is the way we do that. Uh, we, we state the problem. We state the loss very clearly, maybe even poetically, um, of what we've really lost. Not just what we've lost, but what part of us have we lost in this grief. And then turning to God and saying, God, you're here with me. You were here with me when I had this or them, and you're with me now that I don't have them or this. Um, that is really the basic pattern of lament. And it's something we see in the Psalms. It's something we see in other places in Scripture. And I hope we can see it in each other as well. Amen. the day the church commemorates John Keeble. Um, Not exactly a household name, uh, maybe for us, but he was a poet. Um, And that's one thing that I love about people is that we contain poetry. Um, And some of us, like Keeble, may, a lot of people may know that, and a few, and the rest of us Maybe not everybody knows that, but we are poetic creatures. And John Keeble was one such. Uh, born in 1792 um, in England at his father's vicarage. He was a preacher's kid. At 14, he went to college at Oxford, graduated with highest honors. He served at the university in several capacities. And then as professor of poetry, not a bad gig to get if you're into poetry. He was ordained uh, as an Anglican priest and served several rural curacies and eventually in the village of Hursley near Winchester. So he started out at the centers of academic power, Oxford, still is today, and then went out to the country, went out uh, to where people were farmers and things like that to uh, serve them, um, to share the good news of Jesus and live life far away from that center of intellectual endeavor. He wrote a couple books, one about the Christian year. He wanted Anglican Christians to appreciate the cycles of the seasons, something that even in the American Episcopal Church we try to get across because we are subject to a calendar that is sometimes ignorant of Christianity and our faith, and other times it's downright hostile to it. 
if you've ever gone had daylight savings time on a Sunday morning, you know that the whole world doesn't revolve around the church schedule. And so he thought that he could help Anglican Christians revive the spirituality of the church year, how it teaches us about the life of Jesus. And one of his poems is in the 1982 hymnal in the Episcopal Church, number 10. It's a morning hymn. New every morning is the love, our wakening and uprising prove, through sleep and darkness safely brought, restored to life and power and thought. His work was printed 95 times, the Christian Year Poetry Book, um, but it, he wasn't an after fame. He wanted to just do his daily ministry, pray morning prayer with his church, teach confirmation classes, visit the village schools, and kept up a voluminous correspondence for those who were seeking spiritual counsel. He was a good texter, apparently. England at the time was going through a, a really radical upheaval, moving from a rural to industrial urban society. Um, we have the formation of, the, of Great Britain happening at this time, um, and the uh, church in Ireland and identity of Ireland is starting to be more clearly defined. Um, and so uh, Keeble preached about this and spoke out in Parliament um, against the abuses of the English against the Irish. So while he was into poetry and while he was into his rural church life, he also cared about people that live far away, um, who he'd never really interacted with much, but knew that what the country that he lived in was doing was wrong. So even in, um, even in his, in his uh, seemingly small life, he uh, spoke out on the side of justice and truth. Um, and that happened in a, the Assize Sermon of 1833 that ignited a spark. Um, this, his condemnation of the English colonization, which had already happened of Ireland, but they were trying to do it through the church. And he spoke out against this. And this was one of the things that sparked the Oxford movement. The Oxford movement was a movement back to some of the more medieval practices of the church. Not the, the medieval practices of the church that were hurting people spiritually, but the medieval uh, spirituality around Mary and the saints that had been largely rejected in the English Reformation. He was part of the group that published the Tracts for Our Times, and thence they became known as the Tractarians, that sought to recall the church to its ancient sacramental heritage. One of those things that they were calling for was more frequent communion. Um, communion was celebrated about once a month in the Church of England, and they felt that it was a normal thing to do on a Sunday, um, that in the repetition of it weekly, it did not diminish its significance, but rather helped form us spiritually. He and John Henry Newman and Edward Bouvier Pusey uh, and John Keeble were part of this um, early movement. And, uh, and so many others. One of my favorite things about the Oxford movement is how it was carried along by spinsters of the parish. <clears throat> you may not have heard that term before, but because of the industrialization of England at the time and because of the wars that they were fighting in their colonial 
grasp and expansion of the empire, there were many single women that um, lived in industrial areas. And these single women never married, many of them, um, for a number of reasons, but maybe partly for liberation, for freedom from the tyranny of marriage at the time, also for because of the shortage of, of men that were there. Um, and these, as they were known as spinsters, were really the driving force of the Oxford movement and Anglo-Catholic revival in the Church of England. Um, and we're, so we're thankful not only for these men that get a lot of name recognition, but also um, the unnamed women of that movement. Um, he had a college named after him in Oxford, um, even after living a life of rural retreat, he um, did come back to Oxford in his death. And uh, his dedication to learning, his dedication to learning was for this reason, to live more nearly as we pray, that our prayer life and our life should be in sync. They should be reflective of each other. Um, if we pray, thy kingdom come, thy will be done, we ought to live it as well. So thankful for Keeble and this uh, reminder. Grant, O God, that in all time of our testing, we may know thy presence and obey thy will, that following the example of thy servant John Keeble, we may accomplish with integrity and courage that which thou givest us to do, and endure that which thou givest us to bear. Through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Pray a colic for mission today. O God, who hast made of one blood all the peoples of the earth and sent thy blessed Son to preach peace to those who are far off and those who are near, grant that people everywhere may seek after thee and find thee. Bring the nations into thy fold. Pour out thy Spirit upon all flesh and hasten the coming of thy kingdom. Through the same thy Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. And I invite